good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Central Ohio, but you're hearing us over EWTN Radio. It's a great privilege to be broadcasting broadcasting, excuse me, with EWTN. Uh, my guest today is Alan Hunt. He joined us on the Journey Home program uh, the other night, Monday night. Uh, he was a return guest, talked a little bit more about his journey. Alan was a former megachurch pastor. Uh, and Well, let me say, Alan, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Marcus. Good to be here. It's great to, to have you join us here. Uh, I like Ohio. It's nice. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, your little bio uh says that Dr. Alan Hunt and his wife Anita met in college at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Along the way, Anita helped <laughs> Alan earn a PhD in New Testament. Right. Isn't that always the truth? Credit where credit is due. Exactly. <laughs> uh, from Yale University. Together, they enjoy a life devoted to loving God and helping people discover God's purposes. They have two daughters, Sarah Ann and Griffin. Uh, Alan is a convert to the Catholic Church. We talked about that Monday night on the, the Journey Home program. And he's summarized a lot of the key points of his journey in a book uh, called Confessions of a Megachurch Pastor uh, that's subtitled How I Discovered the Hidden Treasures of the Catholic Church. He now serves as Vice President for Strategy at the Dynamic Catholic Institute. And he's nationally known as an author and a speaker, hosts a weekend talk radio show on news and talk WSB out of Atlanta. Indeed. That's right. And if any of you want to know more about Alan, you can go to alanhuntshow.com. Alan, Alan Hunt Show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mean to stump you. <laughs> you did. Alan Hunt Show. It looks like Hunt's house. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I've, been, I've been called worse. E- either way, it gets it across <laughs> to the audience. They know where to... Okay. So, so it's one word, alanhuntshow.com. There you go. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can find out more about him, getting in touch with him. We've been having a good time on the Journey Home program. We... We don't have as much time to deal with Scripture. Yeah. All right. But as we've sat contemplating which Scripture, it's almost like which one not to look yeah. at. Yeah, it's too much fun. I mean, really, and there's so many Scriptures here to look at. And I think the the main issue that has arisen to the top for Alan and I as we've been contemplating this is, and correct me if I'm, if I'm not hearing this right here, Alan, but really we've been reflecting on when we were both non-Catholic ministers. Correct. You were a Methodist, mm-hmm. and I was a Presbyterian. So we, though we were, we were both not Catholic, we were still not on the same page right. in some very crucial theologies. In fact, you mentioned Monday night that when you were in graduate graduate school with three other men, mm-hmm. a Dominican, a Jesuit, and a Presbyterian, you were closer in theology to the Dominican and Jesuits. Correct. Than you were to, to the, the Dominican anyway. <laughs> yeah, the Dominican, there you go. Um, and that because uh, John Calvin's particular spin right. on Scripture mm-hmm. versus uh, John Wesley's right. spin. And I hate to use the word spin, mm-hmm. but but take take, take on it, okay. yeah. But we have a lot of verses we will look at here mm-hmm. in a moment. But I, I think this is interesting in the sense that 
Let's look at this idea of spin or take. Um, John Calvin, to simplify his whole system, he had one key philosophical, theological uh, tenet Mm -hmm. that he could not budge on. Complete sovereignty of God. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That therefore defined everything else. The complete and total sovereignty of God and anything that undercut that in any way had to be modified. Right. Whereas John Wesley had a different take on that. A little more pragmatic, a little more real life was Wesley. Um, Wesley's life was a little messier and he wasn't, he wasn't as, um, he wasn't as systematic of a thinker as Calvin and nor was he as rigid of a, well, he was a very rigid leader, but he wasn't a rigid thinker, preacher, and writer. He was much more practical and it kind of spilled into everything, even his view of communion. There may be other groups that are like this, but John Wesley, because his mother had almost a conversion experience in communion, John Wesley kind of established that communion in the Methodist Church would be open to anybody. You didn't have to be a Christian or remember that anybody who who presented themselves for communion because he was so pragmatic about it. It's all about the mission of leading people to Jesus. Even communion is for that. Uh, Whereas obviously Calvin would never have ever subscribed to such a notion. Right. And um, the secretary to C.S. Lewis has told us that he believes that if C.S. Lewis has had lived longer, he would have come home to the church. I think that's probably right, too. Yeah. And I believe that's true of John Wesley. Yeah, Wesley Wesley had a, had a love-hate relationship with the, with the Catholic Church. He loved the early church fathers more so than anybody else in that era. He was very well-read in the early church fathers and drew deeply from them in his teaching on sanctification and holiness. But he had he, he at times would be very mocking of what he called popery, and uh, he he didn't trust the hierarchy and the um, the authority. He was not big on outside authority. Uh, yeah, but for all kinds of the, reasons. The other problem for Wesley would have been uh, that during the period in which he lived, what what were the dates of Wesley? Uh, r- roughly seventeen oh four to seventeen eighty five, somewhere in there, roughly. Okay, ballpark and. Most of those later years were here in the United States. No, 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 no. It's true? almost almost entirely in England. Yeah, he came he came to Georgia for a short right. spell and got run out of town, literally on a rail, um, because he he refused to serve communion to a woman uh, he okay. used to date. But other than that, he he uh, he sent Asbury Francis That's Asbury, right. who came over and okay. was the the great circuit rider. Okay, uh, but the, he lived at a time period when, particularly here in the United States, and so I don't I can't remember to what extent it was true in in England at the time. But you could easily live your entire life and never encounter a Catholic. Yeah, particularly eighteenth century England. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in yeah. other words, the the negatives that they had. Yeah. I mean, the Catholics were being purged out, and so he inherited some of that. Yeah, yeah. in America, uh, there there were no uh, Catholic priests at all in New mm-hmm. England until mm-hmm. after the Revolution. Mm-hmm. There were some in Maryland, but they were being oppressed because of the penal laws. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring that up is that C.S. Lewis' trajectory towards the Catholic Church, he knew the Pope. He knew Catholics. He was encountered, whereas John Wesley, it was all a, a mental image of the Church. 
uh, information he had, but not from firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. But the reason I say that about Wesley, and the reason I bring that up for our discussion, is that um, maybe unknown to him that his ideas about justification and sanctification mm-hmm. and holiness and free will and the need to persevere to the end were far more Catholic. And indeed, yeah, very, than very John much Calvin's. So. Yeah, and that's, that was one. And it wasn't even just Calvin, but really, I mean, a lot of Protestantism. It, it was embarrassing to me as I began to really study Catholicism and be getting immersed in it. Uh, I realized just how close Wesley was to Catholicism. How much he was aware of that, I, I'm not expert enough. To, I'm sure there's scholars that, that have, right. have talked about that. Um, but in 18th century, I mean, his lifetime spanned roughly almost the entire 18th century. Yep. Um, he drew closer and closer in many ways, and whether he was conscious of that or not, I don't know. Um, but sanctification, holiness, being made perfect in love, um, yep. he, he had some notion of the sacraments more so than a typical Protestant typically does. And then, then that love for the early church fathers and church history, he just uh, he had some he had, he did have some hangups though with it. I mean, he didn't really like Calvinists and he didn't really like Catholics a whole lot, but he liked Catholics more than he did Calvinists. Yeah. And, <laughs> and again, the opportunity for him to clarify his thinking, what was there, and he may not have even had that opportunity because right. of the time and the place that he lived and the availability. Yeah, of- and he and again, he wasn't like um, like Calvin in that he was he was not a. a a big writer. He was not a big, deep thinker. He was more of a preacher and an organizer. Uh, those were his gifts and passions. He was not a systematic theologian who was building grand castles of theology. He was more about preaching in the coal mines and the steel mills uh, and helping to end the slave trade. Uh, so he was much more pragmatic than Calvin. The reason I brought this up for our discussion on the program, Alan, is you came from that background. Right. I came from a totally different background. Mm-hmm. I brought up Lutheran and then Presbyterian, in a covenant seminary. Gordon Conwell is basically covenant theology. Right. Um, and so when we look at a passage of Scripture that neither of us maybe saw very well, yeah. we may have completely ignored it for completely different reasons. Right. Because it's, it's, it didn't fit into either of our theologies. Right. What were we going to do with it? For example, now the, the, the main verse we're going to look at today and then we'll expand from there, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And I always hate to pull a verse out of its context. Mm-hmm. Let's read the verse, and then maybe, Alan, I'll, I'll, I'll lay it on your plate to just talk in general about the wider context mm-hmm. of this particular passage in 1 Corinthians. But this verse has, this one little verse has so many... Oh, man topics yeah. in it that are different between Methodists, Presbyterians, other Protestants, and Catholics. Let me read. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Now, Alan, when you were a Methodist minister, what did you do with that passage? Yeah, it's funny, Marcus, because... I mean, you take First Corinthians, and I mean, when when Dominic, when Saint Dominic would go to preach, um, most of the time he would take two scrolls. One was the Gospel of Matthew, and one was First Corinthians, right? <laughs> and, and because the Gospel of Matthew's got the riches of the teachings of of Jesus, and First Corinthians is so eminently practical for how do you actually live out this faith in Jesus Christ, and so in this letter, Paul, the apostle, is 
dealing with a church that is fractured and quarreling, particularly over some people who thought they were more spiritual than others. I have a bigger dose of the Spirit than you do. I have the gift of speaking in tongues. I'm more holy than you are. And so they were fracturing around that, and he's, I wouldn't say desperately, but he's urgently trying to bind them back together and to remind them of who they are and to remind them of what binds them together. So when you get to chapter 12, he outlines the different gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us, and I think most of us are familiar with that passage where he lists the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge and the gift of service and um, the gift of healing and the gift of speaking in tongues. And then he places this little little verse in the middle of that, and after that he follows it with the image that, we, that we're all very familiar with where he compares the body of Christ to a human body and says there are many different organs and many different parts, um, but you can't live without a small toe and you can't live without a liver and all yep. that we each play a different role. But if one of us is absent or malfunctioning, the whole body suffers. Remarkably, I'm, I'm getting around answering your question. It's taking me a second. Remarkably. In this passage, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Really, as a Methodist, the way that we and I typically were taught and learned to think about that verse, among countless others, was around the very popular notion of inclusivism. So as a Methodist, you would say, see, aha, once again, Paul and the Bible and God are pointing out that there are no divisions in the kingdom, in the people of God, Jews, Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, all the same, slave-free, um, and, and then you would typically go over to Galatians 3.28 where he would throw in male and female. So it's it's a tearing down of all the human categories and separations, um, and, and it's about God is inclusive. Now, inclusive inclusive is a really big word in yeah. in the method well in all main in all mainline Protestantism, but in in yeah. in the Methodist world in particular, like it almost has become it's become an idol. The, the key, yeah. Oh, everything is everything. My entire theological education, if you can call it that, at Emory uh, University, it, it was really kind of embarrassing because every we refracted everything, including Aquinas and Scripture, everything through inclusivism comes first, and now let's interpret these other these other writings as opposed to. Learning to think. I don't mean to take us a little field here, but in this mega inclusivism, right? That what became the the bad words were words like man, mm-hmm. God is Father. But in other words, the masculine words. It mm-hmm. wasn't equality. Yeah, it's that the masculine words became we're bad. We're bad. Yeah. I, I'll give you a story about that if you give me a second. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you, this is how frustrating my uh, my, my theological. This was before I got that I went up to Yale. My my ministry preparation for the Methodist Church was at Emory, and and I had for systematic theology for the big class that was going to bring all the great theological themes together and help you think. Um, we had a team team teacher. We had uh, a male and a female, and they were both extremely politically correct and extremely about inclusivism uh, and that kind of thing. <laughs> And you had to sign, literally, the first day you, you got there to that seminary, you had to sign a speech code saying that you, you would not use Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you would not use God as he, that you would not use mankind, um, that you You're would— kidding. No, the, everything had to be inclusive, what was called inclusive language. You had, yeah, you had to sign right. an inclusive language covenant. So you can never use God as he, you can never use uh, mankind, that kind of thing. So in the systematic theology class, 
we, we've had all these lectures on God, and you, you, you kept referring to God. You, you never could could go to God as He, and they would talk about God as this and God as that and all that. And then we got to the lecture on evil, and the male lecturer <clears throat> introduced the, the notion of Satan, and immediately referred to Satan as He. So a friend and I raised our hands and we said, "Isn't that a little curious that inclusive language?" Doesn't apply to God. I mean, to Satan, but it does apply to God. Isn't that, isn't that curious? So the so the masculine pronoun in Scripture for Satan is he. That's okay. I just want to make sure I'm clear. Um, but we're not to use the masculine pronoun from Scripture for God. <laughs> Professor quickly changed course and and, and just headed on and just ignored us. But I mean, that's that's how ludicrous yeah. and how out of, out of control the yeah. uh, the inclusive inclusive is. Anyway, back to where we where we started uh, before I wandered afoot. That's how I would have looked at this passage, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. But that's an important point. Those of you, you know, I hope, hope those of you listening aren't, aren't frustrated by our tangents, but uh, they're on, at least in my view, on target to what I wanted yeah. to look at. And that is, this is the inspired, infallible Word of God. Mm-hmm. And yet, what do you do with a passage that doesn't fit your theology? Mm-hmm. You either ignore it, find a way of explaining it away, find a, a way of making it fit, mm-hmm. you know, a triangular peg uh, shaving off the corner so it fits into a round hole. Um, or you look for something in it, some part of the passage you can preach on right? and forget everything else. Yeah, and this this really is not that difficult of a, of a verse if we're kind of, when you locate it in the context of that large chapter on spiritual gifts and it's all building up to as Paul's binding them together, and he's moving it toward that beautiful passage of 1 Corinthians 13 on, I will show you a still more excellent way, yeah. which culminates in the climax of, so faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So he's building it all toward, no matter what your gifts are, at the end of the day, it's yeah. all about sacrificial, self-giving, agape love. And this, but this one verse is fraught with all kinds of good stuff that I just never paid attention to. For example, we were all made to drink of one spirit. I never really thought about that. What does that mean that we were made to drink of one spirit? I completely ignored that. But when you when you do when you go back to the previous chapter there in chapter eleven, where Paul is saying, "I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you." So I, I got this from God. I'm giving it to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, and, I, and I'll fast forward there, said, after supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's linking this drinking of the spirit. I mean, th- these are these are within two paragraphs of each other. That's right. So they're, they're echoing back and forth across the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's not like these are two separate thoughts. It's all woven together. So when he says, by one spirit, we're baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I mean, it's, a, it's yet more evidence of the real presence of Jesus in in the Eucharist, because Paul is taking those and linking it together. And again, it's what you and I spoke about on Monday night on the journey home. It's that it's the Eucharistic bond that that binds us together as believers. That's the mortar that holds us together. We drink of that spirit when we it's not just it's not just a cup of wine. Yeah. And you were mentioning Monday night that 
the reformers, when they extricated the Eucharist as the as the central key, mm-hmm. everything else has fragmented. Begins to yeah, begins to spin off out of that, and every concentric circle gets further and further and out, further and further out. So that now that you have thirty three thousand brands of Protestant Christianity in America, and, and, and because really, there's not any mortar anymore, and what each of those represents is at least some variant of interpretation. Mm-hmm. A different spin, going back to your original point on Luther and Calvin. Each one's a little different, mm-hmm. and it comes I agree down. with you in large part, but it's there's this one thing that, hey, you know, I, I'm not sure we can be in the same. So we're, we're going to yeah. go start our own thing. Yeah. Because yeah. really, you, you take this passage different, and, and, and you do that enough times um, that you get into exponential right. explosion. And um, you know, this idea of private interpretation uh, you you wake up in the morning and you happen to turn the TV on and something's on and it inspires you and then you do your morning devotions. You did them in that order, which right. is you know, sort of the right order. Yeah. But you went to TV first, then the scripture. Usually, emails in there somewhere too. Yeah, and the emails <laughs> and you know, and there it is, and uh, you know, updating Facebook and all that, and then you get the scripture and it's it's like all of a sudden four things hit you at the same mm-hmm. time. Something somebody said on that TV or that weather report and that Facebook comment and that email, and then that verse from James, whoa! Mm-hmm. And you come up with a brand new interpretation you never thought of before, and it's a new church. Right, exactly. I just received a revelation from God, I'm going to start my own church. Yeah, yep. I mean, it's, it happens that And quickly. if you find 50 people who, uh, who buy into it, then there you go. <laughs> well, it says in Matthew, Jesus said, whenever two or more gathered in my name. Yeah, exactly. There am I in the midst of you. It's a new church. Yeah, well, it's funny, uh, not, to, not to go down that one too far, but <laughs> nobody ever notices where that, where that verse is, that where two or more are gathered. It's in, the, it's in the context of when they're disciplining a church member, they're saying, you bring multiple people after you've confronted somebody, if they still don't repent, you bring multiple people. So where two or three are gathered, the Lord is disciplining that person. It's not, I mean, it, nobody ever acknowledges that part, that, right. that it's really about dealing with the troublemaker in the church. This uh, w- w- this context of this verse that we've just looked at, the word one mm-hmm. appears a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that can't be insignificant. Mm-hmm. One spirit, one body. Of course, one spirit is twice in the same mm-hmm. drinking of the the one spirit, and you know this this unity again. I, as a Methodist pastor, when you thought of one church, did you either just not engage that idea, or did you think of it as your one? Which you were a mega church pastor, mm-hmm. so you had eight thousand members of your church. Mm-hmm. Did that? sufficiently constitute the one body? In other words, that you were responsible as a pastor to just keep your one body together. Now, what I did was um, there was always a part of me that kind of mourned the loss of the word one, that we didn't really mean it and we didn't really believe it, that God hoped for that, but we were so hopelessly sinful um, that we just weren't able to hold that together. And so there was almost kind of a resignation um, and acceptance of, yeah, uh, I guess spiritually we're all one. There's sort of an invisible God knows we're all one, even though we muck it up uh, as humans by quibbling over stuff. There was sort of a resigned acceptance of that um, rather than an, an, an ignoring of it. Deep down, I always knew John 17 was right. Jesus prays for us to be perfectly one. But, yeah, okay, we're just not going to live up to that one. So I'll just do the best I can. 
I mean, obviously we're all called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Mm-hmm. And of course, I believe that Jesus put that out there just to, to smack in our face to recognize on our own we can't do it. That mm-hmm. was my interpretation of the he didn't really expect his people. Yeah, he didn't mean it. <laughs> you know, he, he was putting it out there to make us realize how much we needed yeah, him. Yeah, what the benchmark was. So we yeah. couldn't. And if obviously if we're that depraved and fallen, as a Presbyterian would believe, then the idea of broken churches makes all the sense yeah, exactly. in the world. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. We're lucky we even have churches at all. Yeah, yeah. why did Paul even talk about one yeah. and why did Jesus even pray about yeah. it? You know, because we're so depraved and we can't do it. So it kind of waters it down to the lowest common denominator instead of living up to the benchmark and the, and the canon. That's right. Let's take a break. Alan, you're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Alan Hunt. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Alan Hunt. And we're just having a good old time here um, <laughs> uh, looking at Scriptures, uh, discussing both how we would have understood them back when we were pastors of churches mm-hmm. from our different theologies, which mm-hmm. were radically different, Um. And then also understanding how they opened our heart to the necessity of the church. Because there we were both men that loved Jesus Christ, believed in the infallibility and inspiration of Scripture. That it was those Methodists, you know, you guys were a little bit off on, on some yeah, of those we, things. Yeah, we were big on your own personal experience. A little bit more yeah, on experience. Yeah, yeah. Interpretation, I was very much of the 
strict evangelical Calvinist camp. Uh, but still, yeah, we would not. We would have believed that the scriptures were the infallible yeah, yeah, foundation exactly. for yep. our faith. Sure, uh, absolutely. But yet we couldn't agreed. Yeah, if you and I, uh, had we been could have so, gotten in a fight in five minutes. We yeah. would. And, May not have taken that long. Yeah, right. And the you had mentioned earlier in the context of the First Corinthians twelve passage, just to back up a little bit that the section in chapter 11, beginning with verse 23, mm-hmm. and you had read this earlier, right? that this is definitely a section of Scripture that nearly every Christian tradition uses. Right. Yeah, when when I stood at the what was the, called the altar in the Methodist Church to celebrate communion— we didn't call it the Eucharist, but to celebrate communion. Right. And I, I think when you did the same in the exactly. Presbyterian Church, it was these words exactly. that we read straight from the Methodist, uh, if you want to call it liturgy or ritual for the ritual for communion, uh, where we would say the words of institution is what we call the words of institution is what we call the call that in the Methodist Church, um, where Paul says Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we, every time we would, and in the Methodist church, some churches would have communion once a quarter, some would have it once a month, some would have it every week. But every single time we would use those words, and almost all Christian groups to this day still use that. And it occurred to me along the way, I don't even remember when this first kind of struck me, this is really important in 1 Corinthians 11 for a reason I had never thought of before. As I was struck, the the last part of my conversion to become Catholic was the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. I was really struggling with that. I, I was there on the doctrine. I was there on the hierarchy. I was there on the history. I was there on everything except for the real presence. And I was really wrestling with that. I called my priest friend, and I said, I think I'm ready to become Catholic. And he said, do you believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? And I went, yeah, I'm still not sure. He goes, well, don't, don't become Catholic. He said, go back, read the catechism again, go sit in Adoration Chapel. But unless you believe that, don't become Catholic, which was great wisdom. Yeah. And And so somewhere along the way, I'm reflecting on this, and I realized— Paul's Paul's writing this letter in the 50s, somewhere in there, in the first century, maybe early 60s, 50s or 60s. And Paul's writing this down, and this is, as I recall, and I may not be exactly correct on this, I haven't checked this, but this is the only time I can remember off the top of my head where Paul directly quotes Jesus as his words are reflected in the Gospels. Now, remember... He didn't. Paul didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in front of him. He didn't have. He didn't have those scrolls. They weren't there yet. He didn't have a He didn't have a revised standard version Bible to go. He didn't have Bible Gateway online to go go look it up. So this is so important. What's the one thing that he quotes from the words of Jesus, our Lord Himself? Are the words about the Eucharist? Where and again, first of all, he says in verse twenty three, "There, I received this from the Lord, and I delivered it to you." And it all, and it's about this is my body, this is my blood, and yeah. I, I just think that's powerful to, yeah. to us to understand that that was so important that the one thing that Paul the apostle got because he wasn't part of the original twelve, the one thing that he got directly from Jesus, the words exactly as we have them, 
are about the Eucharist and in, about the real presence. In Galatians, which is one of his earliest letters, mm-hmm. the reason I bring this up is he talks in Galatians about going to Jerusalem and receiving the right hand right. of fellowship. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, you know, he has his conversion. He 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 goes in and to Damascus. Um, he receives back his his sight. He's preaching. People don't understand who is this guy. So he goes away mm-hmm. for ten years to Tarsus, and he's there until Barnabas goes to get him. We learn that in Acts and brings him back. Mm-hmm. And they he's taken into Jerusalem with the authorities. And part of that is, in Galatians, earlier he's warning about people having false gospels already. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason he goes to get the right hand of fellowship from the the twelve is to have the affirmation of what he is teaching is true. Mm-hmm. He's not going to start a new church. Mm-hmm. He's going to make sure we're all... Because there's one church. He's going to be formed by the authority of Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. The idea yeah. of of Paul doing his own church. Yeah. I've had this experience. I'm going to go do my thing. Completely alien to him. It is an absurdity. Right. So he, he, he gets the right hand of fellowship, of and, communion, of koinonia. And again. it's in that he receives the, the teaching. He receives the doctrine. Doctrine matters. Receives that from the authority. Authority matters. Receives it from the one church. The oneness, the authority, all matter. And I mean, it goes hand in hand, in hand with what he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I preached to you the gospel which you received in which you stand, by which you are saved. So I, what I receive, I deliver to you what I also received. So he, he's taking what he received and, and handing it on. He's not creating his own stuff or his own spin. He's saying, here's what I received from the apostles, from the one authority, and from Jesus, the one Lord, and I'm passing that on to you. In Galatians 2, 1, he says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation. In other words, God was saying, mm-hmm. get up there. Hello. Yeah. Get, get, get up there. Yeah. There's a reason you go there. And I laid before them, but privately before those who were repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest somehow I should be running or had run in vain. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm getting it right. I want to make sure I don't mess it up. And that's before he's done his mis- missions yep. and worked with co- the Christians at Corinth. Right. And then later he's saying, I'm passing on to you that which I've received. Right. And what we're seeing happening here, you had mentioned earlier about you know, Paul being a little bit frustrated about what's happening in Corinth. The one thing that I found in my journey is when you look at the New Testament documents long enough, you realize that Paul's preferred way of delivering the gospel to people was not by letter. Mm-hmm. That was always because he couldn't get there. Right. It was an accident. Right. If he could have been there, he'd have been there, and we wouldn't have had a letter. Right. We know that from First um, uh, Timothy when he's saying, I- I'm writing this letter to let you know how Christians ought to get along in the household of God, the pillar and bulwark of, of the truth. Otherwise, he'd have been there. Yeah. And he's always basing what he's teaching on what he's already taught them. So a lot that goes unwritten. 
But in this case, he's writing to them to correct them because in his absence, those that thought they were superior because Mm -hmm. of their particular gifts were running wild with their Mm -hmm. private interpretations of dividing into little factions and we're better than you and we'll do this thank you we don't want your um, questioning us or reproving us we've got our own little thing and i mean even as he says there in the beginning of first corinthians about um some of you say you were baptized uh into peter some into apollos some into paul and no 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 no. you know this is this is about jesus this is this is this is about the church this isn't about any individual leader any pastor any speaker any prophet they're all in service of the one Lord. I mean, I think, I mean, 14 years. Yeah. 14 years. Yeah. yeah. How long have you been a Catholic? Yeah, four. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we, we got some years I, yet I got to some, be I got, I got, I got, I still got some formation to do, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and one last point on that, Marcus, as you helpfully pointed out in Second Corinthians, I mean, Second Thessalonians, again, the words of Paul, So, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So again, Paul was very conscientious about making sure that he was very clear on what he received, making sure he got it right, and that he then passed that and only that on. So there wasn't, well, here's kind of my take on it. So, you know, here's what I've received, and I'm passing on And to me, that was the beauty of becoming Catholic is we're still doing that as opposed to anybody who comes up with a new interpretation. It's like, yeah. let's go start our own little movement and, and run with that. Paul was very careful. He wasn't frivolous. He wasn't. He didn't have this experience on the Damascus Road and say, okay, now I've, I've got everything I need, and I'm just going to go preach and do my thing. I mean, if you think about this church in Corinth, which obviously hadn't been around for 100 years. Mm-hmm. These are brand These are the new Christians mm-hmm. there, and and they're they're unified— first, and then the divisions happen mm-hmm. when the leadership is gone, right. for whatever reason. And uh, and you were a pastor of a pretty large church, which 8,000 members, I knew you never had any dissensions. Oh, gosh right? heavens, no. Uh, and, the saints were always saintly. And in the first chapter of First Corinthians, mm-hmm. the one you'd mentioned a second ago, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you can see I'm just pleading there in chapter, verse 10, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then he gets on to the part about, you know, one saying, I was of Cephas and I was of Christ and I was Apollos. Because what happens in churches is when there's disagreement, people are are looking for some foundation to their authority, for their opinion. And if you and I disagree, well, it, it, we've got to have something behind us to make our authority stand firm. So you say, oh, I got it from Peter. Mm-hmm. And, and well, I got mine from mm-hmm. James and some of but I got mine from Andrew. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul is saying, letter, I got this yeah. from the Lord. Yeah. And the other verses, you know, this is his whole foundation for you. I went to Jerusalem. I got the hands of the apostles. Right. So I'm passing it on. And it is interesting, in the midst of all their opinions, they can't agree, there's dissension, uh, they're not united. He's he's pleading for that. In the middle of that, as you said, he quotes the one time in all his letters. Yeah. He pulls up the one thing, word for word. Yeah. Word for the, word. Which not is, just sort of a paraphrase, verbatim. That's how important it is. The center. Mm-hmm. 
that establishes the unity and the oneness. Before that, in verse chapter 10, it's worth going back to this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so this is even before. We're, having, we're starting to have fun here now. Yeah. Um, verse chapter 10, why don't you go ahead and, and that section that begins with verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. And here's where it gets rich. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation, koinonia, in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's the, it is the one bread, the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. A koinonia of the body of Christ. A share, participation is, is, is so anemic for the translation of koinonia there. Yeah. We koinonia, we are joined to, we share in, we're merged in the body of Jesus, in the blood of Christ. So he, he roots them there in 10. He brings, it, bring, brings them back to it in chapter 11, where he quotes verbatim the words of Jesus. And then he brings it back in chapter 12. Hello, are you beginning to get the point here? You're fractured. What is it that unifies you? It's the one spirit that you drink. It's the one body that you eat. It's the body and blood of Jesus. That's the center. That's what holds you together. Come back to the Eucharist. Come back to that unity. That's the, that's the remedy for your fractiousness, for your division, and for your false pride. Let's take a break there, Alan. That's a great place uh, because this is such a key issue, which not just those outside the church need to discover, but we within the church need to appreciate as the Corinthians did. Indeed. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Alan Hunt, and you're hearing us on EWTN. Global Catholic Radio Network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Alan Hunt. We were during the break just kind of fine-tuning what we want to do in this last. We have like uh, 10 minutes to do three hours worth of fun stuff. But I wanted to post something to you, Alan, because you were pointing out something in these passages, which you discovered on your own journey, and that's the central necessity of of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And the example that I wanted to give and then let you think about it and comment on was there's an experience in John chapter 3 when at night Jesus is approached by Nicodemus, right. who was a Pharisee and a ruler, which means he was influential and well informed. He knew their background, knew all their history. And he was impressed by Jesus's 
signs. So he knew he was of God, but he wasn't getting it. And so Jesus gives him the born again stuff. You must be born again. And Nicodemus never gets it. Mm-hmm. The context is you must be born again by the water of baptism. That is the context. He didn't get it. So Jesus then, in John 3, draws his attention to something he would remember from his background. And he says, do you remember back when the people complained in their in their rebellion and their disobedience that God was so fed up with their constant complaining and divisions that he sent snakes into their midst. Mm. And and God tells Moses to put a serpent on a shaft. And if the people looked at the serpent, they were saved. And Jesus says, essentially, that's me. Because the next verse is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, who should ever believe in him would not perish. The context is, is looking to Jesus on the on the pole, on the cross. Yes, so must the Son of, in verse John three fourteen, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, as he compares that to what you're saying with Moses, the, yeah. the staff and the serpent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up as an illustration is that in the Old Testament context, with all their instructions and the laws and and the sacrificial understanding, yet they were confused, they were divided, they were divided. So what God does is he brings all of their focus onto one thing, Mm -hmm. and that's going to make sense. Mm -hmm. Christ and him crucified. In John 3, it's that. Mm -hmm. Um, Out of everything, Mm -hmm. in the context of 1 Corinthians, it's the Eucharist. That's the center. Their divisions, their disagreements, their conflicts of authority and background, he brings in the one thing, the Eucharist. And what's you got me thinking about Nicodemus now, Marcus. Um, <laughs> we're covering some territory today. This is like three shows in one. Um, evidently, that stuck with Nicodemus. Because then in John, when you flip into chapter 7, the Jewish council is having their behind-the-scenes conversation about Jesus and what in the heck do we do with this guy who's claiming to be all these things. And Nicodemus moves from—he first comes to Jesus at night, yep. and then in, in chapter 7 he's there and they're having this meeting. He goes, well, look, we, need to, we need to be fair here. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He says, we need to be fair. The, the law says this, so let's give him a fair hearing. And then when you get to the end, in John chapter 19, Jesus is dead on the cross. He's been lifted up to draw all men to himself, who are the two people in the Gospel of John who come to take his body down, to anoint him, to wrap his body in the in the cloths, and to, and to for lack of a better term, bury him? Yeah. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus. And at the beginning of that, it says that, that it was in the middle of the day. So he's coming in the light now. So he's moved from the darkness into the light, and it's because he's now seen Christ crucified, and he's been drawn, just as Jesus really—I mean, it's almost like a foreshadowing. Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus clearly went away and processed that. It's like it took me 20 years to to become Catholic (laughs) in my journey from um, Methodist to Catholic. Nicodemus took, what is that, three years, four years, and— when he Jesus says, when when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And indeed, in the end, in John 19, Jesus dies on the cross, 
Nicodemus is drawn to him and no longer at night in the day. He's moved from darkness into light, and he receives Jesus yeah. from the cross and places him in the tomb. And the as uh, our good friend Dr. Scott Hahn points out, that the crucifixion of a man outside the temple, outside the city, on a hill, would never have been understood in that time as a sacrifice. It would have been nothing but a crucifixion. Yeah, it's just another person in the, in the electric chair or a lethal injection. But it was what he said on Thursday night mm-hmm. and what he, he shared with the men on the Emmaus Road mm-hmm. that made sense of the cross. Right that it was a sacrifice mm-hmm. for us. And what I want to draw our attention to is with this idea of the of Nicodemus seeing being drawn by the focus of 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 Jesus on the cross therefore making sense of everything else. With that focus everything is brought to that. In Corinthians we see the same thing of the Eucharist. And interestingly, there even in First Corinthians, Paul says in First Corinthians two verse two, "I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." So the cross does what nothing else can do in bringing us together to God and showing us to God. And it's the Eucharist that's the living. It's yeah. not merely a, a remembrance or a memorial. It's the living yeah. invitation into the presence of God. What, that's what binds us together. Given that. Then what would these verses say? Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. I tell you one thing, when I was a Methodist pastor... I just wrote those verses off yeah. and said, we don't have any idea what that means. But now that I'm Catholic, I get it. If you don't believe that there's anything happening in the Eucharist, if you don't believe that that sacrifice is real and that that's the real presence of Jesus, what difference does it make? Yeah, I think- so we, I, I was very, a, very easily able to dismiss that when I was a Methodist pastor. But now that I realize this is the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, there's something at stake here. I need to be spiritually prepared and I need to be in the right mind and in the right soul place to be doing this. Well, as you mentioned on the Journey Home program, once you take the Eucharist out of the center, Mm -hmm. you end up with fragmentation. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that's holding all the pieces together. In Corinth, he's he's bringing it back. Mm -hmm. It's the center of their gifts. It's the center of their life. It's the center of their unity. And if you ignore it, then... As, as he's saying there, you're guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, and if you, and if you take that and you apply it to what Christianity in the world looks like now, <laughs> Paul, Paul was they were already having a hard time cohering as one in Corinth in the first century, 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death. So here we are 2,000 years later. We've fragmented into all these groups. What If you really believe that Jesus was sincere, that, that we should be perfectly one, if you really believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, what is it that will bring all of our separated brethren back home is remembering who we are. We are the people of the Eucharist. That is what binds us together more than anything else. That's the hope for the reunification of God's fractured, fragmented body. 
And Jesus, of course, said that in John 15, he's, he called us, we must abide in him. Right. And yeah, that's only, another one I never got as a Protestant. It, I thought it was just sort of this mysterious, uh, ethereal, invisible thing. But, but that's Eucharistic, too. The only place in Scripture where he tells you how to abide in him yeah. is in John 6. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I, I in him. I mean, there it is, mm-hmm. the centrality of the Eucharist in our lives. Amen. Praise the Lord. Indeed. Alan, thanks for joining us. It is good to be home, Marcus. <laughs> it is good to be we'll home. We'll have to have you back. It's just too much to cover in one time. But uh, I do want to tell the audience, again, your website is the Alan Hunt Show. Just alanhuntshow.com. Dot com. If you want to get in touch with Alan and his books, he's got his book, Confessions of a Mega Church Pastor, which is about how he discovered the hidden treasures of the Catholic Church. So thanks again, Alan. God bless. Us. Thank you for joining us on this program. I hope it was an encouragement to you. Uh, God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week.